today, I do want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John uh, chapter 1. I know my heart was just so lifted up and through the songs that we've just sung and joining my voice together uh, with yours. Um, and I think the Lord wants, and then even the openness of heart that we have as we greet one another, that we, we keep our hearts open to receive God's heart as he communicates his heart through his word. And we'll see his heart on display this morning. John chapter 1, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, uh, we come to John chapter 1, verse 19. My goal this morning is to cover uh, verses 19 through 34. And the title of the message is, John the Baptist Explains Himself. John the Baptist explains himself. If somebody came up to you this morning and said, who are you? What would you say to them by way of answering uh, that question? Would you give them your name? Um, If they say, well, I know your name, but who are you? What would you say? Uh, Would you speak about your occupation in life? Would you talk about your place in your family as a mother or father or brother or sister? What would you say? Would you speak of your ancestry or your ethnicity? Or would you maybe describe uh, to this person what other people may say about you? What would you say if somebody said to you, who are you? When describing herself uh, years ago, the comedian Lily Tomlin said, as for who I am, I always wanted to be somebody, but now I realize I should have been more specific. Someone else said, if you told me to describe myself in one word, It would be that I'm not good at following directions. (laughs) On a less humorous note, I've seen people wearing t-shirts that say, I am whoever I want to be. But how would you answer that question? Who are you? This morning, we're going to see a man whose name is John, John the Baptist, who is asked that very question twice. He's asked that question in verse 19. He's asked this question again in verse 22. In addition to that, he's asked, what do you say about yourself? And we're going to get to see how John answers that question and how he ends up making his answer more about Jesus than it is about himself. Already, just in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John that we have studied so far, uh, John the Baptist has been talked about in four of those 18 verses. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse uh, 15. And then in the 20 verses that we're going to be looking at today, John the Baptist is the central 
character, the central actor in these 20 verses. And this means, guys, that in the first 34 verses of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist figures prominently in 20 of those 34 verses. Go figure. And yet, what's interesting is that in giving John the Baptist 20 verses of coverage in these first 34 verses, the Apostle John, who's writing this gospel, is not taking the spotlight off of Jesus in any way. In fact, he's only enhancing the reputation of Jesus because what our passage for today will continue to illustrate for us is that John the Baptist was all about Jesus and all about pointing people to Jesus. And would to God that this would be true of all of us. Amen. That when the spotlight shines upon us, that it ends up only enhancing the testimony or the reputation of Jesus. As for John the Baptist, just a few quick facts about him. We learn in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was the son of the elderly priest Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. His conception and birth was announced by an angel, by the angel Gabriel, who told Zacharias that his son would be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb and also told Zacharias that his son's mission would be to serve as a forerunner to the Messiah to prepare the way for him. As for John the Baptist's growing up years, in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, you can write down that reference. We read these words, the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We learn in the gospel accounts that his wilderness diet was locusts and honey, and his clothing was a garment of camel's hair. So imagine what a misfit such a person would be in our day, and you have a pretty good idea of the kind of misfit that John the Baptist would have been in his own day. When John the Baptist did enter into his public ministry, we're told that multitudes were flocking out to hear him preach, and he preached the need for repentance, and he baptized in water those who repented. And we see that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. And guys, the fact that John the Baptist baptized in water was a remarkable thing, that he baptized Jews in water. Back in this day, the Jews would baptize Gentiles who were converting to Judaism in order to represent them as becoming a part of the people of God and being cleansed of their Gentile corruptions. So baptism was something that happened to Gentiles who were becoming a part of the people of God. It was not for Jews 
who were already the people of God. So John the Baptist baptizing Jews was a very loud statement suggesting that even the Jews needed to be converted in order to become the true people of God who are ready for the Messiah. There's more to learn about John the Baptist, and we'll learn those things as we look at our text for today as John the Baptist explains himself in relation to Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we'll observe four efforts by John the Baptist to explain himself and his ministry in relation to Christ. And the first effort, we can word this way, John explains his identity in a way that points to Christ the Lord. He explains his identity in a way that points to Christ the Lord. Observe what the Apostle John says in verse 19. This is the testimony of John, speaking of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? It was the job of the priest and the Levites to serve in the temple of Jerusalem and to serve the people by facilitating the worship of the true God. Yet here they have been sent out away from Jerusalem, out into the wilderness by the Jews. And you might want to underline that expression, the Jews. You're going to see it uh, about 70 times, seven zero times in this gospel. And most of the time, this is code speak in the gospel of John for the religious power brokers in Jerusalem. These are the members of the Sanhedrin, the leadership body over the people of Israel and those associated with them. These are the men who, in about three years, are going to condemn Jesus to death. But three years prior to that awful moment, we see here that they send out some priests and Levites to go out to John the Baptist in the wilderness to ask him the question, who are you? And the reason they're asking this question at least in part, is because of the large crowds that are coming out to hear him and the many people who are being baptized in water by him and because many people at this time were wondering if John the Baptist might be the Messiah. In fact, write down the reference Luke chapter 3, verse 15 where it says, now the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ or the Messiah. Imagine this scuttle getting back to the leaders in Jerusalem They hear this scuttle and they must send this delegation to ask John the Baptist directly the question, who are you? 
And look at John the Baptist's answer in verse 20 when they do ask him. It says in verse 20, And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Here it is. I am not the Christ. How's that for an answer? Someone comes up to you to ask you, who are you? And the first answer out of your mouth is, I'm not the Messiah. I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I wonder if we would all be in a better place if we began our introduction of ourselves the way that John the Baptist does here. Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I am not the Christ. Telling people that you are not the Christ right off the bat would let others know that you have no intention of playing the role that only Christ should play in their lives. And it would serve as a reminder to yourself to never try to be to another person what only Christ should be to them. John the Baptist never had a Messiah complex And he did not let anyone put that burden on him either. Looking back at verse 20, it is kind of odd to read how the Apostle John prefaces John the Baptist's answer by saying, look at the text, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. What does the Apostle John mean when he says that he did not deny when in fact he is denying that he is the Christ. Well, what I think John the Baptist or what the Apostle John is trying to communicate here is that John the Baptist did not deny Christ the glory that was due him. Given his popularity, John the Baptist could have given in to temptation and said, I am the Christ. Many lesser men during this very time period who had a smaller following than he did made exactly such a claim that they were the Messiah. John the Baptist could have said that and robbed Christ or denied Christ of his rightful glory. As an alternative approach, John the Baptist could have been evasive and coy and at least enjoyed people wondering for a little bit longer if he might, in fact, be the Messiah. A lesser man would have maybe avoided saying what he says here and would have enjoyed the ego trip of people at least wondering Is this guy really the Messiah? When I was in the sixth grade, something you guys don't know about me, I was one of the physically weaker uh, kids in my sixth grade class, but somehow the rumor had gotten out amongst my classmates that I knew karate. (laughs) And I did nothing to squash that rumor. Uh, I didn't know the first thing about karate, 
Um, but when my classmates would ask me, some of them would sometimes come up to me, do you know karate? I heard that you do. I would always say, I don't want to talk about it. That's what I would say. And of course, that only made the legend grow even more. So I didn't outright say that I was the karate kid. But I didn't deny it either because I enjoyed my classmates wondering if I was. And thankfully, John the Baptist was not like me. He could have responded in any of the ways I just spoke about to the thought that he might be the Messiah, but to respond in these ways would have been to deny Jesus Christ the glory that was due to him alone. So John the Baptist confessed, verse 20, and he did not deny Christ his rightful honor, but confessed up front to this delegation, I am not the Christ. End of rumor. And he would then see the disappointed looks of those whose view of him just went down in response to his answer. So these priests and Levites now know who John the Baptist is not, but they want to know who he actually is. So look at verse 21. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? This is an understandable question. After all, John the Baptist did dress like Elijah. Uh, you can write down the reference, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. We're told in the English Standard Version that Elijah, and I quote, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, unquote. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 6, we're told that John the Baptist was, and I quote, clothed with camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist, unquote. On top of that, in Malachi chapter 4, in verse 5, God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. For this reason, many of the Jews expected Elijah himself to appear before the Messiah came. So the men in this delegation are asking John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no, I am not. That's his answer. The truth is, there is a sense in which John the Baptist was not actually Elijah, and there was a sense in which he was Elijah. The angel Gabriel had foretold in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that John the Baptist would minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus himself speaks of John the Baptist as, and I quote, the Elijah who was to come, unquote. But, and this is important for us to understand, John the Baptist never made such a claim about himself for he probably felt unworthy of such an honor. All he knew is that he was not literally Elijah, nor did he feel worthy to be equated 
to him. So he says, no, I am not. So he denies that he is Elijah, and this delegation responds to his denial by saying, are you the prophet? And John the Baptist doesn't even have to ask them what prophet they are talking about here in this question in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. God speaks to Moses and he says, and I quote, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him, unquote. And the words of this text in Deuteronomy 18 were understood by the Jews to point to one particular prophet who would be a second Moses to the people of Israel. And so this delegation is asking John the Baptist if he is this Moses-like prophet foretold in Deuteronomy 18, and John the Baptist says no. So all this delegation has gotten from John the Baptist so far are denials. And they've learned that he isn't the Messiah, he isn't Elijah, he isn't the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, so who is he? Look at verse 22. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Finally, John the Baptist gives them a positive answer for them to take back to their bosses in Jerusalem. And notice that he doesn't say, I am John, the son of Zacharias. He doesn't even give them that. Instead, look at what he says in verse 23. He said, I am a voice. Let's stop right there for a moment. I love this. In John 1.1, the Apostle John describes Jesus as the Word. But here, John the Baptist merely describes himself as a voice, a voice. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, the way of Jehovah, as Isaiah the prophet said. John is quoting from Isaiah Chapter 40, verse 3, back in this day when a king would travel to a city that was in his realm, the king's servants and the people of that city would prepare the road that the king would be traveling on in order to make that road straight and smooth for the king. And John the Baptist is saying, if you want to find me spoken of anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures, you'll find it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I'm just a voice, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of Jehovah, as Isaiah the prophet said. Implied in these words from John the Baptist is the fact that the path is not yet straight and smooth. All is not well between God and the people of Israel. There is brokenness that lies between the people of Israel and their Jehovah Messiah. And what John the Baptist is saying here amounts to an earnest invitation to repent. 
And John the Baptist is saying to this delegation and to their bosses, make straight the way of Jehovah, for his approach is imminent. I'm not the Messiah, he says. I'm just one person who is helping to build a road for him, a road right into your hearts, a road for the Messiah, and he is coming very soon. Observe the next effort by John the Baptist to explain himself and his ministry in relation to Jesus. Number two, John minimizes himself and his baptism, and he exalts Jesus and his baptism. John minimizes himself and his baptism and exalts Jesus and his baptism. It's in verse 24 that we learn about who else is in this delegation that has been sent to inquire of John the Baptist. We were already told that the delegation included priests and Levites, but here in verse 24, the apostle John says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. The language here uh, could mean that the Pharisees were the ones who sent this delegation But it also, and probably more likely, simply means that there were members of this delegation who were from among the Pharisees. Either way, this is our first introduction to the Pharisees in the Gospel of John, men who will later come to despise Jesus and have a hand in his death. Of all of Israel's religious groups, We would not have expected this of them. The Pharisees were the strictest adherents to the law of the Old Testament. They were very concerned about separating themselves from the world and from all that is unclean. Part of the problem, though, is that these Pharisees added a bunch of their own traditions to the Scripture to the point where they became more about those traditions than they were about God's Word. That said, the Pharisees at this time were the conservative right-wing party of Israel, very highly esteemed by the people of this nation. And for this group that featured some Pharisees, the Apostle John says in verse 25, They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? This is the real rub of their interview. What really bothers them is that John the Baptist is presuming to baptize and to baptize Jews and to do so without authorization. As I mentioned earlier in this message, water baptism was a ritual that a Gentile convert to Judaism would undergo before becoming a Jew. This baptism was administered by the priest, and it had to be done in water that had been made ceremonially pure. And John the Baptist was doing none of these things. He was baptizing Jews He was baptizing them in the muddy waters of the Jordan River, and his baptism 
made a very loud statement to all Jews everywhere. And this statement was, because of your sin, you are outside of Abraham's covenant with God. You must repent and come to God as if for the very first time. Amazingly, great numbers of people among the Jews were coming and being baptized. They were receptive to John the Baptist's message here. They repented of their sins and were being baptized by John. And this delegation of priests and Levites and Pharisees is asking him, why then are you baptizing when you don't have the authority to do this? John the Baptist could have answered this question in a variety of ways, but he chooses to answer their question by turning their focus to Jesus. Look at verses 26 and 27. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I love John's answer here. This delegation of men is all concerned about him and him baptizing in water. And John is saying, there's a bigger fish for you to be concerned about. And I'm just a little minnow compared to him. I only baptize in water is the vibe here that John the Baptist is saying, and he goes on to essentially say, if you're concerned about the fact that I am baptizing people in water, there's someone coming who will be doing a kind of baptism that you should be even more concerned about. John the Baptist continues in verse 26 and says to them, among you stands one whom you do not know. In other words, the Messiah is here already. And you not only don't know who he is, but you don't know him. And this would have been very hard for these priests and Levites and Pharisees to hear from John the Baptist. They were used to being at the center of the religious life of Israel and being the first ones in the know about anything important that God was up to. Surely if God is going to do some new work in Israel and have his long-awaited Messiah come, surely God would make sure that we're the first ones to know. That's what they would have thought. But here's this crazy man in the wilderness wearing a garment of camel's hair who knows who the Messiah is? And they, the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees, are the ones who are struggling to figure things out. They are the ones who have to come out into the desert to even try to figure out who John the Baptist is. They don't even understand him. And he's not even the Messiah. And John the Baptist is saying, you got a bigger problem than trying to figure out who I am. The Messiah stands among you, and you don't even know who he is. And you should be focused on learning more 
about him. We're going to see in a few verses how John the Baptist at this point already does know who the Messiah is. He knows it's Jesus, but the religious leaders of Jerusalem don't know who he is yet, and neither do these men who are questioning John the Baptist. In fact, as John the Baptist words it here, their problem, like I said earlier, is not just that they don't know who he is, they don't know him. They have no relationship with the Messiah. So John educates them. In verse 27, he speaks of the Messiah and says, It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. The task of untying the thong of one's sandal was one of the lowliest tasks that a slave would render for his master. And John the Baptist is saying here, I'm not even worthy to be this man's slave. I'm not even worthy to render the lowliest task of a slave for him. That's how great he is. So John the Baptist is making it clear where Christ stands in relation to himself, and he wants them to know. Christ is not just greater than John the Baptist. He's so much greater that John the Baptist is not even worthy to untie his shoes. Imagine how someone whose heart was open to the truth would have received this. They would have looked at John and perhaps had so much high esteem for John the Baptist, seeing him as the tallest person of spiritual stature that they've ever known. Yet now they hear this one, John the Baptist, saying that there's another person who stands a hundred feet taller than him. Do you have this high of a view of Jesus? Do you feel as honored as John the Baptist was to serve Jesus? Do you value Jesus so highly that you would consider it your highest honor to render the lowliest service for him? Do you read the words of Jesus each day and leap at the sound of his commands and relish the opportunity to please him? I hope that you do. Looking back at the text as for where this exchange took place, in fact, you may be sitting here going, man, I'm learning about this conversation. Where did it happen, Pastor Milton? Well, the answer is in verse 28. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. By the way, I was kidding when I said you were dying to know where this happened. But John tells you so that you know this happened in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was doing his baptizing. The Apostle John, uh, who's telling us this, has to clarify where this Bethany is because there were two Bethanies during this time. There was one just outside of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, and that'll show up later in this gospel. But there was another Bethany also 
that was on the eastern side of the Jordan River out in the desert. And the Apostle John is saying this is where this particular exchange took place. Observe the next effort by the third effort by John the Baptist to explain himself and his ministry in relation to Jesus. Number three, John points to Jesus as the exalted Lamb of God. He points to Jesus as the exalted Lamb of God. Observe what happens in verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is why we say that John the Baptist knew at this point who the Messiah was, because on this particular day, he sees Jesus walking toward him, and he knows who Jesus is, and he knows what to say about Jesus, and he wants everyone assembled in that moment to know the truth about Jesus, this one whom John the Baptist has already come to know is the Messiah. To everyone present, he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This statement by itself shows an amazing understanding of Christ on John the Baptist's part. Even after following Jesus for three years, Jesus' own disciples will still not understand what John the Baptist is declaring here. And they won't understand it until after his resurrection. The truth that Jesus will take away the sin of the world and he will do so as a sacrificial lamb who is slain and not just as a lamb, but as the lamb of God. And quite literally, John the Baptist is calling upon everyone present on this occasion to look at Jesus as the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. As many of you know, lambs were offered by the Jews as a sacrifice for their sins because throughout the Old Testament, God required blood atonement for sins, and when a Jew would make his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he would bring a lamb or some other animal with him to offer as a sacrifice for his sins. This is the way it was. It was up to the sinner to provide his own lamb for this sacrifice. Yet according to John the Baptist's words here, Jesus is not the Lamb of man. He's not the Lamb that we bring to God. He's the Lamb of God. In other words, He is the Lamb that God provides and that God brings. You and I, we come empty-handed to the altar of our salvation. But God approaches that altar with his own lamb, whom he offers as a sacrifice for our sins. As for us, we bring nothing to that altar but our sins, and God brings the lamb. 
He's the Lamb of God. As far back as Genesis 22, verse 8, Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham had said to his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And here John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus and saying that Jesus is that lamb, the lamb that God provides. In this short statement here, John is prophesying of a coming moment in which Jesus is going to be slain as a sacrifice for sins. He's telling us that Jesus is the one who is prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7, to be led as a lamb to the slaughter, and that he is the one who will end up being a guilt offering for our sins, as is taught in Isaiah 53:10. And notice how John the Baptist ends his statement saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Such language indicates that Jesus is going to die as an atoning sacrifice for all people without distinction, transcending all national, racial, and ethnic boundaries. Beyond that, John the Baptist's point is also that Christ's death is going to set in motion a chain of events that will not only provide atonement, for the sins of those who believe in Christ, but also will ultimately one day result in the complete removal of sin from this world altogether. John the Baptist continues in verse 30 and says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This statement here is an exact repeat of what John the Baptist said in verse 15 of John chapter 1 that we looked at last week. John the Baptist describes Christ as one who comes after him chronologically on the public stage. But though Jesus comes after John the Baptist, John the Baptist says, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Why? For he existed before me. Again, this shows remarkable awareness on John the Baptist's part that Jesus did not come into existence at his conception in the womb of Mary, but that he existed in eternity past and simply took on human flesh at his incarnation. Then John the Baptist says in verse 31, I did not, in other words, I did not in the past recognize him but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John the Baptist here is being humble and transparent and honest. What he's revealing here is that when he started his public ministry, he did not know who the Messiah was any more than anyone else did. All he knew was that his baptizing ministry would somehow and in some way serve as the venue for the Messiah to begin manifesting himself to Israel. How was it then that John the Baptist came to know that Jesus himself was the Messiah? 
Well, this brings us to the fourth and final effort by John the Baptist to explain himself and his ministry in relation to Jesus. Number four, John explains how the Spirit helped him to know that Jesus is the Son of God. John explains how the Spirit helped him to know that Jesus is the Son of God. Observe what happens in verse 32. John testified, this is John the Baptist, testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained on Him. Speaking of remaining upon Jesus. The Apostle John does not give us the details that this particular moment happened But we learn in the other gospel accounts that this moment occurred as Jesus was coming up out of the water after being baptized by John the Baptist. And speaking of this particular moment, John the Baptist says here in verse 32, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He, the Spirit, remained upon Him. You can write down the reference, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, where Luke tells us that after Jesus came up out of the water after his baptism, he says, and I quote, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, descended upon Christ in bodily form like a dove. So this was something that was perfectly visible to John's physical eyes. And God made sure that John the Baptist would see this so that he would know how to interpret it when it happened. That raises the question, how did John the Baptist know to interpret this action as proving or indicating that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, he continues in verse 33 and he says, I did not, prior to that moment, I did not recognize him. In other words, I did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but he who sent me to baptize in water, that's God who sent him to baptize, said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is saying, I didn't know when I started my ministry that this one that I'm pointing to now was the Messiah. But here's what I knew. God sent me to baptize and God gave me this promise saying, the person upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the Messiah. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist right now is saying, this moment actually happened. I literally saw with my own eyes the Spirit descending upon this man whom I am calling the Lamb of God and remaining upon him. And this is why I know that he is the one who is the Messiah. He is the one who will baptize people in the Holy Spirit. This particular baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to happen in Acts chapter 2. And it will happen at the Gentile home of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And thereafter, Jesus baptizes all those, including you and me, who believe in Him, baptizing us 
in the Holy Spirit, immersing us richly into His Spirit and giving it to us to experience His Spirit in abundance. And John the Baptist knew that Jesus would be the one who does this spirit baptism when he saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. John the Baptist continues and says in verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And by the way, John the Baptist would have had an easy time describing that Jesus is the Son of God from this episode because when the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, we learn in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, that a voice spoke from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And that statement that God made from heaven was merely the exclamation point on what John the Baptist was already discerning. That Jesus is the Son of God, the royal Son of God. And calling Jesus the Son of God here, John the Baptist is saying that He is the royal Son of Psalm 2. That He is God's anointed Messiah who will be given the nations as His inheritance. He is the Son to whom all must pay homage in order to be saved. And how blessed are all who find their refuge in Him. Actually, it would have made sense for God to give to John the Baptist this particular sign of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and remaining on him to indicate that he is the Son of God, the anointed Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the Messiah is prophesied to say, listen to this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He's Messiahed me. And Jesus actually takes these words from Isaiah 61.1 and applies them to himself in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. And John the Baptist got that message loud and clear when he saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus and remaining upon him. All in all, what we have in this passage is John the Baptist explaining himself and doing so, guys, in a way that ends up being more about Jesus than about himself. This passage begins with people asking John the Baptist, who are you? And what ends up coming out of his mouth is more about Jesus than it is about John the Baptist. At no point does John the Baptist say anything about himself that does not end up being connected to Jesus. No matter what John the Baptist is asked about, he finds, or even talks about, he finds a way to direct the topic to Jesus. And I wonder to what degree this is true of you and of me. When people are trying to get to know you, how long does it take before you explicitly bring up Jesus Christ and who you are in relation to him? When you explain to people who you are, 
Does Jesus Christ figure prominently in your explanation? On another front, what is so remarkable about this whole passage are the details of what John the Baptist knew and taught about Jesus Christ even at this very early stage. Just from what John the Baptist says, just from his words in this passage, we learn the following things about Jesus. And let me give you a short way to title each of these. You can write down, if you're taking notes, sacrificial lamb. Sacrificial lamb. We learn from John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will die and thereby take away people's sins and eventually remove sin altogether from this world. Secondly, write down the word pre-existent, pre-existent. Before John the Baptist was born, Jesus already was, meaning that Jesus pre-existed before his conception in the womb of Mary. John says he was before me. Before me, he was, though John the Baptist was born before Jesus. Write down the word exalted, because John the Baptist in his words teach, teaches us that Jesus is of such a higher rank than John the Baptist that John the Baptist is not even worthy to render the most lowly service of a slave for him. And then write down the word spirit. Spirit. The spirit of God has come upon Jesus and remains upon him. Write down the word Baptism, because from John's words, we learn that Jesus will baptize people in the Holy Spirit. And then write down the words, Son of God. Because from John the Baptist's testimony here, we learn that Jesus is the Messianic Son of God, the royal Son of Psalm 2. That's a pretty well-developed Christology from the ministry of John the Baptist before Jesus even launched his public ministry. And it serves as a primer for everything that follows throughout the rest of John's gospel. In fact, here's the apostle John many decades after John the Baptist spoke these words. And the apostle John is reflecting decades later on Jesus Christ and who he is and was and all that he did during his time on earth. And the Apostle John is marveling at how everything that was later revealed about Christ was already contained in seed form in the words of John the Baptist at this early moment. And the Apostle John so much feels this way that even after decades of historical and theological development in his own understanding of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John can think of no better words to put into the first chapter of his gospel than these words of John the Baptist about Christ. That being true, I should add that as much as John the Baptist knew about Jesus already, you and I, know so much more than what he did. John the Baptist did not live to see Christ's death. He did not live to see Christ's 
resurrection and ascension. He didn't live to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit that would happen on the day of Pentecost and how the church would be born and how believers would bring the gospel to the nations of the world and people of every tribe and tongue and nation would have their sins taken away through faith in Jesus. I am sure that John the Baptist could not fathom the fullness of all that you and I know to be true about Jesus. We know so much more about Christ than John the Baptist did, yet are we as obsessed with Jesus? Are we as obsessed about Jesus Christ as John the Baptist was? Knowing more about Jesus on this side of history, we have so much more reason to love him and to believe in him than John the Baptist did. Do we love him? Do we love Jesus as we should? Do we trust him as we ought? How much do we seek to make him known to others? How often do we direct conversations toward the topic of Jesus like John the Baptist did? How honored are you and I to engage in the lowliest task of service for one so great as Jesus? We began this morning with the question, who are you? I ask you that question again. Who are you? I hope your answer is, I am not the Christ, but Jesus is. I hope your answer is, I'm not the Savior. I'm not my own Savior, but Jesus is. I'm not the Lamb of God, but Jesus is. Jesus is the Lamb that God provided to take away my sins and I believe in Him, and I want others to believe in Him also. I hope you can say all of that this morning. I hope this is your perspective. I hope that in the days to come, as I know is true already of so many of you, that whenever the spotlight is on you, that you will always find a way to point people to Jesus and enhance His reputation in the eyes of people. Finally, just as we wrap up, uh, one of the most touching things to me about our passage today is, is that it points us to, I, don't, I know of no other way to say this, it points us to the dance of glory that occurs between Christ and those who honor Him and who glorify him. When John the Baptist is asked, are you the Elijah? He says, no, I am not. And he said that, no doubt, because he felt unworthy of such an honor. Yet when Jesus later spoke about John the Baptist in Matthew eleven fourteen, he says he was Elijah. When John spoke of Christ, he said, Essentially, Jesus is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. In return, when Jesus speaks about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11, he said, truly, I say to you, among those born 
of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And that's what it's like to dance with Jesus. If you make it your aim to live for him and to love him and to honor him and to glorify him, he will honor you and glorify you higher than you could have ever imagined. He's good like that, you know. So humble yourself before him. Live for his glory. And he will in this life and in the next honor you and glorify you beyond your highest dreams because that's the kind of Savior he is. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us to do this. Lord Jesus, we can never outgive you. We can never outglorify you. Your heart is so full of love with so much to give that if we just live our lives for you, endeavoring to please you and to lift your name high, we will find that as we humble ourselves before you and exalt you, that you exalt us. Not only in this life, but ultimately in the life to come in heaven for all eternity where we will experience literally a glorification wrought by you that will elevate us beyond our wildest dreams. When people humble themselves before you, Lord, and make their lives all about your glory, you don't squash them under your feet and say, yeah, they're all about me and, and it stops there. No, you lift up such a person through time and into eternity beyond anything they could have ever accomplished on their own. So help us, Lord Jesus, to just orbit you, to revolve around you, to be all about you and honoring and glorifying you because you, Lord Jesus, have an amazingly good heart and you are good to those who love you and look to you for salvation. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that has never come to you and believed in you for salvation, draw them to yourself even in this moment that they might see the beauty of your person, the goodness of your heart, and that they would then consider it to be an intolerable suffering to live one more hour apart from you. You are that good. And what is not to love about a Savior like you? We commit ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. In your name. And all God's people said, Amen.